Well, good morning. Happy New Year. If you're here, you must be feeling good this morning, so that's something to thank the Lord for. If you're watching online, maybe you're not feeling as good. I know we've got some sickness in our families and everywhere, and, uh, but it's good to be here. Uh, praise team has called us to worship well this morning, and that we have been doing for since our Lord has uh, ascended and promised to return. Our God's people gathers on the first day of the week to worship, no matter their situations, no matter their circumstances and so now we come back to our looking at the letters to the the churches and we look at the church in Thyatira today so if you got your Bibles turn them to Revelation 2 we're going to finish up the chapter uh, verses 18 to 29 and if you think with me just sort of geographically um, the churches make up this horseshoe shape and we are moving away from the coastland now and we are moving inland and what you're going to see, and this is very critical, as, as you get away from these major cities that are major hubs of both religion and politics, remember in that day, in most of the places in the world, there's no separation of church and state. It, the religion is always a part of the political system. Um, persecution is more intense in these larger cities. And now we have come around and moving inland. What you're going to see, and you'll see it more next week, is that persecution is beginning to decrease. The church is becoming more comfortable, and therefore we see more corruption and more immorality coming in the church. Matter of fact, if you look at our own history and church history, you're going to see the same temptation. The more comfortable we are, the more problems we encounter. And so, let's see what's going on in the church in Thyatira this morning. Let's stand to our feet and let's read the, our passage. This is the longest of the letters and is, and is pretty intense as well. So let's hear what the Lord says. This is the Lord's words. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. And I will throw her throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our Lord. 
Lord, as we come having heard your word, we are your church. Called before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you. And so, Lord, today there are many of us that may be compromising and tolerating in small ways that we, see, we think are insignificant, even unimportant to our Christian life. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you uncover those secret things, those deep things, those everyday things, to make us more like your Son? This is our desire as your children. To reflect your son in every way. In the practical everyday things of life. We have ears to hear Lord. Teach your children today. In Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated. So let's jump into it. If you look at verse 18. You see this reoccurring theme that we see. Not only in the beginning of Revelations. But we see pointed to in every beginning of every letter. This preeminence of Christ. Notice in verse 18, this is a little rare in in Revelation, that he is called the Son of God. This Son of God also has these eyes that are a flame of fire and these feet like burnished bronze. Now if you remember, this is the description that's given to him in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1. It's also the same description you'll see if you turn back into Daniel and look at chapter 10. So this symbolic language is one of the keys to understanding Revelation. The the symbolisms always point back to some place in the Old Testament. You can begin to understand this picture. This This is a symbol of Christ as the ones that can see. He has a penetrating power to see to the heart and the intentions of people. Specifically this one we're going to call Jezebel this morning. He sees what she's doing. He sees her plan. He sees her scheming. He sees her seducing. And he has the power, that's the feet, to do something about it. And so we have the preeminence of Christ and the compromise of the church. We could call this compromise part two. Remember, we've already seen a compromise in the church in Pergamum. This is a distinct kind of compromising this is our everyday kind of compromising or tolerating this is what we would all say sometimes and when we probably all have said it you know a man got to make a living i got to do what i got to do the lord understands that i mean look at the way i have to make a living i, I have to do this We're not going to get the jobs. We're not going to get the contract. I'm not going to get more work. We may go out of business. I've I've got to do it. The issue, see, is holiness in our everyday go out and make a living. And our tendency, when we get comfortable, to simply compromise for the sake of the American dream or taking care of my family good book. I would recommend it. I read this many years ago. I wish I would remember it at church in Pergamon, but I remembered it as I was studying this. It's called The Truth War by John MacArthur. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make several quotes. I'm going to make up because I really wanted to quote it last week, but I didn't think about it. But listen to what he says. He says this so well. We sometimes tend to think of the early church as pristine, pure, and untroubled by serious error. 
The truth is, it wasn't that way at all. From the very beginning, the enemies of truth launched an effort to infiltrate and confuse the people of God by mangling the truth and by blending lies with Christian doctrine. Attacks against the truth regularly came from persecutors. The truth came not only from the persecutors on the outside, but also from false teachers and professing believers within the visible community of the church. He goes on to say that it's important, and I would challenge you just sort of put this on the shelf this morning as we go through and see if this is true. God has a zero-tolerance policy for false teaching. Zero. I would just ask you as, you, as we go through this letter, see if that's not true. There again, like I said before, longest letter to the least significant of all the seven towns. No, no real big major religion, temples, those are not the focus of Thyatira. As a matter of fact, the purpose of Thyatira historically was it was significantly located. It was a buffer to protect Pergamum. So it was located in a valley and there were some major roads that went through it. So if you were going to take Pergamum, you had to go through Thyatira. So guess what happened to Thyatira over the years? It was attacked, destroyed, rebuilt. Attacked, destroyed, rebuilt. That was Thyatira's purpose. But when Rome came under rule, peace began to come. And this, when peace came, prosperity comes. Sound familiar in our own history. When peace comes, prosperity comes. And what this was is very similar to where we live now. Manufacturing, at least it was back in the day, was a key for where we live today. It's how most people made a living. This was true here. Metalworking and textiles were huge there. Do you remember Lydia from the New Testament? She was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple. And in, in that area, arounding Thyatira was a route where they made the purple, got the purple dye that they dyed the fabric. This was huge. And what people were, had to do, had to do, this is the context, is they joined what we call these trade guilds. If you were going to run a business, you had to do the right people work. You had to do the right connections. It's the same way in our world today. You got to go hobnob with the right people. You got to join. And, and if you didn't join these trade guilds, then you would commit sort of commercial suicide. Not only as an employer, but as employees. Uh, let me give you an illustration. And there again, I'm not saying anything bad about unions. This is a hypothetical illustration. But I think it's one of our only ways we can grab a hold of what's going on in that context. Imagine the union is going to be voted in where you work. And, ma and just and there again, hypothetically, let's say that you find out that the union has ties to organized crime, prostitution and trafficking, that they have ties to it. But yet, here's what's going to happen. If, you, if they vote the union in where you work, you're going to get a $5 an hour raise. And if you're an employer... You're saying if we get the union in, we're going to get more business. It's going to bring more business. It's going to bring more workers. It's going to take care of a lot of our problems. Do you see the tension here? Do you see the potential for tolerance and compromise? Do, do we go along with that? Do we vote them in? Do I join this trade guild? That's what they were going, even though, so what's the big deal? The trade guilds were connected to the temples. It was connected to the idolatry. It was connected to all the feasts. They were one of the main, you would say, customers in the metalworking industry, in the dyeing industry. 
And so they were connected. That's the problem. That's what's going on. You're sitting there going, well, what did the church do? you got to understand. The church has always had this one policy. We do not work for or do not promote anybody that is idolatrous. We don't support it. We don't go on the airways. There's some people today that are justifying having ministries and preaching on airwaves of the prosperity preaching networks and thinking, well, at least the gospel's going forth. The church has always had a zero-tolerance policy for those who saw their garments and climb into the bed of idolatry. James 1.27 says, one way we know that we are practicing true and undefiled religion is that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So this is a holiness issue. The Lord attends the church in Thyatira and commends their hard-working, diligent faith, but He warns that tolerance at the expense of holiness leads to judgment. So we've seen tolerance at the expense of truth. Now we're seeing tolerance at the expense of holiness. He's commending them to start with. Their hard-working, diligent faith is obvious. It, matter of fact, look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Notice they put the ands in there. What they're, what they're teaching us here is these are meant to be paired together. Love for others has produced service. Faith in Christ has produced perseverance. Your love, here's what he's saying, your love is producing something. You're not just saying you love me. You love the people of God. It's producing service. They are faithfully engaged in loving and serving each other. And you know this, I ought to get an amen from some mamas and wives in the room. Love washes the dishes and folds the clothes without being asked. Somebody. That's right. You see, see, if you say you love somebody, but it doesn't produce anything, then your love is a fraud. It's not authentic. Listen to what Galatians Paul says to the church in Galatia, Galatians 5, 13. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Listen to this. But through love serve one another. You see how that works? That's what he's saying. It's through our love that we serve. That's what it's producing. Not only that, our faith is producing endurance. They are, they are not giving up. They have, it may not be as intense as it is in pl- places like Ephesus, but they still have those same internal, external pressures of life. They're holding up. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.11, this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue, listen to what he's saying. This is what he tells them to pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness or in other words verse 12 fight the good fight of faith that's what the, what's what that's what the lord's telling them you're fighting the good fight of faith and your faith is producing this steadfastness when god says it this way the possession of a virtue can only be proved and guaranteed by a life that fits it So it's not sufficient to make a profession with your mouth. 
if your life is making a different confession. Not only that, notice what else he's saying. It's growing. Your love and your faith, you're growing. It's not like Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? They started out white hot in love with the Lord, but it sort of waned. These, the church in Thyatira was growing in their love for the Lord. Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's what he's saying to the church in Thyatira. You see a principle here, and I hope you've picked up on it by now. Criticism is most effective when it begins in praise. <laughs> I want to practice that if you can. Not saying praise people who, who doesn't have anything to be, that's praiseworthy. You're going to see that next week. Jesus doesn't always praise people. But he praised them here because it was worthy of commendation. But then he criticizes and what he's going to criticize them is their tolerance at the expense of holiness. In other words, tolerance always has a cost. What are they tolerating? Well, this woman named Jezebel, putting that Jezebel in quotation marks. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so if you remember when we talked about the Nicolaitans, they, follow this, they followed a man named Nicholas. These, these Jezebelites, if you want to call, call them that, are following this woman that Jesus is calling Jezebel. Now, her name is probably not Jezebel, but she is a person. Do you remember the Old Testament? This is where your knowledge of the Old Testament really is either a help or an impairment if you don't. Because that's what they're leaning back on, that you know the story of Jezebel and Ahab the king. You remember her. She led, she seduced God's people away from the one true God. To follow the prophet, the, the, the God of Baal. Remember, she had her own prophets and the showdown on the mountain. You remember that? That's what they're pointing to. This is a modern day Jezebel who is seducing. Notice that language. She's teaching, she's leading through teaching. She's seducing them away from the one true God. It was Jezebel, by the way, remember that encountered a violent death that involved dogs. You can read that for yourself. 1 Kings 16 to 1 Kings 21. Big story. So what was the problem? Notice what he's saying she's doing. She claims to be a prophetess. Now a prophetess is a spokesperson for God. That's what that word means. She was teaching God's people... And it was the content of her teaching that was a problem. She, she was leading the believers into sexual immorality and idolatry. That when you partnered with these trade guilds, what came with that is a lifestyle. Beliefs produced actions. And, and so these partnering with these things that benefited them physically, their jobs and, and their businesses, 
but it pulled them into a lifestyle. And she's saying, it's okay. Much like the Nicolaitans, God's grace is good enough. It's good enough. What's the big deal? Again, MacArthur from the Truth War, spiritual terrorists and saboteurs within the church pose a far more serious threat than manifestly hostile forces on the outside. From the very start of the church age, all the spiritual deadly onslaughts against the gospel have come from people who pretended to be Christians, not from atheists and agnostics on the outside. Something to pay attention to, brothers and sisters. Tolerance in one generation leads to practice in the next. And if you don't believe it, look back three generations and see what they tolerated. Now we go and look at an application or fill out a doctor's appointment and you have an other beside gender, male, female, or other. Who would have ever thought that three generations ago? That they were tolerating. You see, the issue here is what the Bible calls spiritual adultery. We would simply say they had a lack of holiness. But the Old Testament always calls it spiritual adultery. You see, it is like an illustration of a man that doesn't really go out and and cheat on his wife physically, but after they both get into bed, he gets out and he goes and looks at porn. Then he goes and climbs into the bed with his wife. The Lord calls that adultery. Because he's going here and he's going there. Not giving up one or the other. That's what they're doing. This is what tolerance and compromise produces. We're going to see the hypocrisy on full display next week. But the Bible in the Old Testament called this spiritual adultery. Go and read the book of Hosea. The whole book's about that. Jeremiah 3.20 says it this way. This is the Lord speaking about his people. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This hostility toward God and his people have always been characterized as harlotry or a type of prostitution. In Revelation 17, let me just read what it says about Babylon's harlot. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Here's what he's saying. That has come into the church. That that we would expect from the world from the Babylon mindset, has begun to come into the church. And Jezebel's the ringleader. Do you remember when, when the Lord delayed from coming down the mountain? And they built an idol and tried to fool themselves that it was just a symbol of God. And then Exodus 32.6 says, they sat down to eat and rose up. One translation says, to play. Sidebar, an important one. This is a question that's come up several times here recently, and it's a good time to address it. Does this passage teach that Jezebel is false because she is a woman, or is she false because she teaches falsehood? You see the question. Is it criticizing her because she is a woman and she's calling herself a prophetess and she's teaching? 
Or, or is she in such trouble because of the content of what she's teaching and the product of her life and what she's leading others to? We sometimes tend to think that women should not be allowed to speak because of 1 Corinthians 14.34. Or that a woman should never teach because of 1 Timothy 2.12. But here's the truth of the tension you've got to put in this in the Bible. There have been women prophetesses that were not uncommon in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Acts, and I put these in your notes for you to look up for yourself. Don't trust me. Acts 21.9, Philip's daughters were prophetesses. Luke 2.36, Anna was a prophetess. Old Testament, Miriam, Exodus 15, prophetess. Huldah, 2 Chronicles 34.22, prophetess. Deborah was a prophetess, not only a judge. In Corinth, you see, they had the same issues going on in Thyatira. That was a church that was just full-on licentious like the culture. And the women were the ringleaders dealing with a situation. In other words, listen to me really clearly today. The explicit teaching is that the office of the elder is reserved for men to reflect headship. And that comes from the Trinity into the home, into his church. And we must get that right. But also the truth is, is women shared the work in ministry from, of the early church. Obvious, it's biblical, it is historical. The problem is not this woman Jezebel was a woman. The problem was she was a false prophetess. She was a false teacher. The issue was what she was teaching and how she was living, not her gender. The Lord commands. The Lord commands. He makes... It's really both an indicative and, an, and to an imperative. Indicative, just a statement of fact. Here's what he's saying. Verse 21, it's too late for Jezebel. The sovereign. I gave her time to repent. Verse 21. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I gave her time. The Lord is patient. But even his patience has an end. It's too late. She's refused. Punishment is sure, verse 22. Behold, I will, notice the I wills, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. There's our tribulation word. Unless they repent of her works. The pronouns and everything here is really important. Most likely the word, the sickbed, this word of bed is simply irony. Remember, what he's accusing her of is spiritual adultery, of not only committing adultery against God herself, but leading people in the church to do the same. He says, that's fine, I'll throw her into a bed. This is not only her, but also those who are following her. This bed is a bed of pain and suffering. It is present. It is not simply future. It is a right then, right there a judgment. Keep in mind, if you go back and read the story of Jezebel and Ahab, that when the judgment of God came on them, and it came on, by the way, the head, Ahab, he had 70 sons, and all of them were beheaded, and they brought his sons to him with their heads in baskets and piled them up before the city gates. Most likely, that's what he's saying here. That's an illusion just saying, that's the kind of judgment that's coming because of false teaching. 
It's too late for her, but it's not too late for her followers and those that's being deceived. Notice the end of verse 22. There's an unless there. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. There again, you're paying attention to all the pronouns going on here. Those are important. In other words, the imperative is still repent and live. It's not too late. Even for these that are following Jezebel, there's still a they and there's her works. The judgment is coming. And so here's the reality. Within the church... There were three types of there were three types of people, three kinds of people, three groups of people that was associated with this congregation. You see it in verse 22. First, there was those who commit adultery with her. Now that didn't mean she, she set up a brothel and they were visiting the brothel. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to some degree that these folks have compromised in one way or the other, either passively or actively. They were joining the trade guilds for gain. In turn, some of them were being pulled into idolatry and the immorality that was connected with all the feasts and all these, all these little hobnobbing celebrations they would have with each other. But make no mistake, this prostitution, this adultery, can be either active or passive. Remember, tolerance is the issue. What does the word tolerant or tolerance mean here? To tolerate means to leave them alone. Now you need to let that set on you a minute. What Jesus has just said is very clear. I didn't have to do a whole lot of preaching on that, did it? It was just that clear. Tolerance. To tolerate here means to simply leave her alone and leave them alone and let them do what they want to do within the body of Christ. The impending judgment was for doing nothing. <laughs> Their sin was that they did nothing. The second group. first group was those who committed adultery. The second group he called her children. Whereas the first group is deceived, confused, seduced. The others they call her children. In other words, they're full-fledged followers. They're not repenting. They, they see this Jezebel as their spiritual mother of having the true knowledge of what it means to live under grace. Notice the goal of all of this judgment in verse 23 is so that all the churches will know all the churches, all the churches were supposed to read this. And all the churches were going to know that it was the Lord. Notice what he says, that searches the mind. You see, this is the problem. How do you know the difference between the first two groups, right? The ones that are, are confused, that are seduced, that are deceived, and those that are full-fledged followers of this. Truth is, me and you probably can't. But the Lord does. 
Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, searches the heart and examine the mind. How does he do that? With what he said at the very beginning of this letter. With his flaming eyes and bronze feet. His ability to discern and his power to act. Notice the issue that's coming. Is that he will repay. Notice what he says. Each of you according to your deeds. Doing nothing is going to have a cost. Just like following Christ has a cost. The point is that if the church does not act, they will be judged along with Jezebel and her followers. Toleration is spiritual adultery, active or passive. Both brings judgment. There's a third group of people. It's called the rest of you. <laughs> Do you see in verse 24? But to the rest of you in Thyatira. There's a group of people. We're going to see this next week. This is called remnant theology or the doctrine of the remnant. God always keeps a remnant of people. You see that all through the Bible. Notice what he says to them, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what... Some call the deep things of Satan for you. I'll say, I do not lie any other burden. Only hold fast for what you have until I come. These were the rest. These are ones that were not compromising. Not actively or passively. They were, they were engaged in truth. They cared about holiness in their personal life. Even if it cost them work or a job. Christ is so pleased with these believers. It's, it's not like they were perfect people, right? That's what he's saying. It's not like you're not, you don't have something I could correct this morning. It's like being a parent, right? There's always something to correct. And God feels the same way about us. There's always something he could correct. He said, I'm not going to lay any other burdens for you. Because listen, what they are holding on to is costing them something. It's costing them something. We looked at Colossians 1 over Christmas. Just wanted to put this together. Colossians 1.22. Colossians 1.22 and 23 says this. Let's look at verse 21. And you who, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, listen, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, what this passage is is really grabbing, is the whole message of Revelation. Hold fast. Or in other words, to receive the final reward, believers must continue to be faithful until Christ returns. We call this the perseverance of the saints. Everyone who is saved will persevere, and all those who persevere are saved. One more quote from MacArthur. Both right doctrine and right living are absolutely essential and totally inseparable for the true child of God. 
That is the consistent teaching of Christ Himself. And I would ask you, what is Jesus' policy based off the Scripture with false teaching? Pretty sobering, isn't it? Zero tolerance. So must we. So must we. So what? So what's right there in verse 26 to 28? The Lord's going to reward the faithful. The Lord rewards those who refuse to compromise truth for comfort. For any type of what we've been calling gain. Be it material gain or social gain. The more closer we get to the end, the more the temptation, the more it is going to cost you to be a Christian. Notice what he says. Verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. So, brothers and sisters, we cannot promise any believer that standing on truth will not be costly. Christianity comes with a cross and a crown. And the cross is always first. Always first. We can, we can promise you that it has always been costly to be a Christian, but it's worth the cost. The reward is real, and the reward is real authority. Do you see it in verse 26? Real authority. This is, this is taken from Daniel. Daniel 7, 18. Let me just read one verse. There's a lot we could read in Daniel. Verse 18 of Daniel 7 says this, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. I love that. Forever, forever, and ever. In Revelation 20, those who are martyred for the faith are sitting on thrones and ruling. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, that the saints will judge the world. And so this is not a special reward for some people, for some, for special Christians. This is the reward for all believers. For those who are faithful to the end will receive real reward with real authority and real ruling. Verse 27, He will rule. Who rules? The one who conquers. Who is the one who conquers? The one who is faithful to the end. This is Psalms 2. He's just quoting quoting Psalms 2, listen to what it says, Psalms 2, 8 and 9 says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's always been the promise to God's people. This is not speaking, identifying a millennial rule here. This is talking about the eternal rule that comes when the new heaven and the new earth in our consummation. This is real authority, real ruling, and a real reward. Look at verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. What in the world is that? Let me just read it to you. Revelation 22 and verse 16 says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am 
the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The reward, brothers and sisters. It's not mansions. It's not streets of gold. It's not you getting to see the people you love again. It is Jesus. He is the reward. And if He is not the reward today, then He will not be the reward in eternity. Those who want the reward in eternity live for Him today. We love Him today. He's what we get up for. He must be why you have your job. Not that money. Some of us have made a lot of money and made a little money. And we had not been happier in either end of it. You can be miserable on either end of that. But you can be full of joy in Christ. Because Jesus is enough. And I can take this gospel to Haiti. I can take it to Honduras. I can take it to anywhere in the world. And it works because it's the truth. And if you can't take the gospel that you believe in to a third world country, you probably don't have the truth. This is real reward. Christ Himself. And He says, so therefore, therefore. Let me just read what Peter says. It's not in your notes. 2 Peter 3.11. It says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Right? All this stuff that we think is so important, that we're willing to compromise over. He says, since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Because this is true, because this is our reward, real lifelong perseverance is needed. One, one brother said this, the Christian life doesn't consist... Of one victory over sin. Or one victory over temptation. It consists of a lifelong faithfulness. That is constantly engaged in the battle of sin. Both individually and corporately. William Barclay says the Christian life is not a battle. It is a campaign. And those of us who have some snow on the roof. No, that's true. Real holiness is required. Perseverance is required. Holiness is acquired. Matter of fact, John Stott, I've been mentioning him every week because his, his words on this is so good, is that holiness is another indication of a true church. So let me just remind us what we've learned then up to this point. That up to this point, every church has taught us something. That the marks of a true church is love, Suffering, truth, and holiness. Holiness is purposeful. It produces something. Not only in this life, but a weight of glory in the next. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. As as one of your elders here, my pattern of life, what governs what I do, what I tolerate, and what I don't, is that I am supposed to live a life that is above reproach. That is, if somebody can't look at me and says, Aha! That's not just a call for me. That's a call for everyone. This holiness that we speak of today follows us into our work into our hobbies, into our homes, because that is what we truly believe is where it's lived out. 
call this morning is to hold fast to the truth. Refuse to compromise. It doesn't matter what it costs. Christ is faithful, and so must we be. And so, like he's promised us in other places, stand firm to the end, and he will give us the crown of life. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you have given us the spiritual parentage that shows us that your church should be made up of both elders and deacons. One to labor in the word to protect the sheep spiritually. The other labors in the word and protects the sheep through serving. And in doing that, your church is protected. Cared for and loved. So she might grow to be holy and blameless. And never compromise on the truth. Oh God, may that forever be true here. And yet, Lord, we know of places where the church is oftentimes a battlefield. And so, Lord, we commend our brothers and sisters to you to fight the good fight of faith, but to fight it with the weapons that you provide, not the world. And so now we as your children have come to you our father and have come to the time where we respond and so now Lord we respond by coming to the tables through giving through worship and then through our going and so Lord we pray for our church members today many of whom are sick or weary many of them have people as I've heard who have lost people close to them One dear sister took her dad to the ER by ambulance a few minutes ago. Lord, there's a lot of things going on. But your people, who were called by your name, settle themselves in the midst of the storm. Because you hold us in the palm of your hands. And we as your people will stand firm and say, we will be faithful, no matter what it costs. So be worshipped in our singing, in our giving, in our communion, and in our going. In Jesus' name, amen.